This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, it is my absolute pleasure to host Stephen Olakara. Stephen Olakara is the founder of the Millennial Action Project, or MAP, the largest nonpartisan organization of young lawmakers in the U.S. MAP works with over 1,500 elected leaders in Congress and state legislators to strengthen our democracy. A nationally recognized political commentator, Stephen has appeared on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and many other media outlets. An avid musician, he's also the co-author of the book, JFK, The Last Speech, on the role of artists in democracy. Stephen hosts the Meeting in Middle America podcast and is the subject of the new documentary, The Reunited States. Previously, Stephen has advised two multi-platinum recording artists on global youth empowerment and sustainable energy, including an initiative that electrified over one million homes with solar power across Africa. He also spearheaded a safe water access project for rural schools in Tanzania with USAID and was a founding board member of the AMEL Project, which trains young human rights activists from the Middle East and Africa. Stephen graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a Udall and Truman Scholar. He serves on numerous boards and commissions advancing democracy, national service, and the performing arts, including his hometown's Sharon Lynn Wilson Center for the Arts in Brookfield, Wisconsin. In 2012, the Wisconsin Legislature recognized Stephen with the State Assembly Citation for Outstanding Contributions to His Home State. Stephen has been named a Global Shaper by the World Economic Forum, a Forbes 30 Under 30 in Law and Policy, and a Forward Under 40 by the Wisconsin Alumni Association. And this just in. This week, Stephen announced his decision to form an exploratory committee for the U.S. Senate in Wisconsin, with the goal of running as a candidate in the 2022 election. To learn more about Stephen's campaign and his vision for the Senate, a vision grounded in the ideal of dignity for all, visit www.stephenolacara.com. That's www.stephenolacara.com. And now on to my conversation with Stephen. Stephen, you're the founder and the senior advisor of the Millennial Action Project, or MAP for short. So what is MAP? So MAP stands for Millennial Action Project. And let me first say it's a real pleasure to be on the podcast, Deb. This is uh, one of the great podcasts in our country, and uh, everyone learns a lot by tuning in. So I'm really grateful to be here. And so I grew up in Wisconsin, and the early ideas for Millennial Action Project really came about from my upbringing here. And I have an unconventional path into politics. My first passion in life was music. And playing music in different genres of bands really helped me find not only what became the mission of MAP, but actually my life calling as a bridge builder. And Mm -hmm. the very short version of that story is when we would bring our motley crew of 
bandmates together and audience members together, we noticed that the art was evolving to a better place as opposed to diluting to some kind of least common denominator. And so artistically, I became very interested in how you bring people together across the lines of difference. And the reason that became a political expression is because I saw how our democracy was headed towards greater polarization, demonization, even dehumanization. And when I projected out longer term, I felt that our democracy would reach a fundamental breaking point. And all the issues that I cared about, whether it was uh, economic opportunity for those who are really at the, the bottom, as well as uh, dealing with the generational threat of climate change, among other issues, those would not get addressed without a reinvention of our political system. So that was really the ethos behind founding Millennial Action Project. And its goal is to train a generation of leaders who are skilled in the art of political bridge building, who are capable of building diverse coalitions to pass legislation and help those uh, who've been left behind and left out of our political system. And that takes the form of forming these chapters of caucuses in Congress, as well as in now over 30 state legislatures. We have over 1,600 young elected officials who actually now are leading efforts in all 50 states. And we focus on issues like criminal justice reform and energy and climate change, among other issues. And I think the biggest lesson I learned from this whole thing is that the methodology works. We've passed bipartisan legislation, for example, to authorize the Centers for disease control to study gun violence as a public health issue, passed legislation on gerrymandering reform, passed legislation on clean energy, passed legislation to take down the state flag in Mississippi, which had the Confederate emblem, and now raise up a new flag that's inclusive of the state, of all the people in the state. So the point is that it's led to concrete, tangible uh, results. And so that's what MAP is all about. Yeah, and it's, it's the largest, I think, bipartisan group of millennial politically active people in the country. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. And it's nonpartisan. And, and in a time when things are so partisan, it's important to remind people that we have Democrats, Republicans, and independents who are bought into this movement. It's not so much about left versus right. We try and reframe issues as future versus the past. So it's really about trying to raise consciousness, elevate a more compassionate and inclusive form of politics, and demonstrate that that is not only morally the right type of politics, but also practically uh, what's going to deliver most for communities. And every conversation we have, I am just blown away by how much you've accomplished and how large this movement has become. Was this what you started out to do? Was this the vision that you had when, when you set out to create this new political project? Or were you thinking smaller? Were you thinking larger? What was the vision then? <laughs> you know, I've been reflecting a lot recently on this map journey. And I think I just try and remind people that in the early days of map, it was seen as so impossible to get to where we are today, where we have nearly 20 full-time staff members so many elected officials, lots of bipartisan legislation passed. We've successfully inspired a lot of young people to get involved in politics and have proven a lot of people wrong that the practice of bridging is possible and actually something that people can enjoy doing as well. And so there were a lot of strikes against, against us early on. And I think I just tried to follow that inner voice that was 
trying to push us through every single day. But the truth is, in the beginning, I had hoped in my wildest imagination that MAP would become what it is today. Now, you could debate whether that was hallucination or that was a real vision, but I always hoped it would get to that point. And so, especially in this past year, a lot of my highest dreams and hopes for the organization came true. Having Dr. King's family directly involved in training our leaders, having leaders start to organically essentially form chapters and organically pursue initiatives that are in some ways beyond our imagination. And I'd always hoped that I think one of the best parts of leadership is, is bringing together a great team of people who can do things that maybe you hadn't thought of. So I think the overall structures and the overall framework is, is what, exactly what I'd hoped for. But in many ways, the specific projects and specific wins and some of the unlikely people who have signed on to our work, that has been beyond my imagination. I talk about a motley crew of band members. I feel like we have a motley crew of, of legislators who are not yeah. just in the centrist middle. I mean, they're coming from all across the spectrum and, and you often... Mm -hmm. You know, that crew of people would never otherwise be in the same room together. And, you know, at our annual conference, when we'll do the round of introductions and hear the rich diversity of accents represented, sometimes in stark contrast uh, from each other, you could hear from someone from rural North Carolina and then someone from uh, urban Detroit within just a few seconds. And you realize this is what America at its best is really like. Mm -hmm. I love hearing those diversity of accents and the diversity of experiences. And so having that breadth of diversity represented in our group in many ways even exceeded my imagination and i'm really grateful for time which much and can you give us a few names of, of people who represent this kind of diversity and, and what do you think brings them and compels them to get in the same room together yeah so i'll share a great example from this past fall in wisconsin we launched an unprecedented bipartisan really cross-partisan movement for safe voting to advocate for reforms that would help people vote during a pandemic and then also educate people on how to vote during these unusual times and as you can imagine voting being a fairly divisive issue unfortunately a lot of efforts are done on a partisan basis and so we decided to not write anyone off and start reaching out to our members about being involved in the safe voting campaign and we really started with listening that's a big part of our ethos and we found advocates for voting and access to voting who would not be on the radar of any voting rights organization because we had worked with them maybe on other issues like workforce development issues and built that trust over the years where they really came to buy into the style of politics that we were talking about. And so, you know, we had some state legislators in Wisconsin. A, a great example would be State Representative Tyler Vorpagel from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. That area is known for Kohler Company being one of the big employers there. Uh, the PGA uh, National Championships uh, uh, are held there. And, you know, he became, as a Republican, uh, very mm -hmm. one of our biggest advocates for the safe voting campaign. And then on the Democratic side, we had people coming from uh, inner city Milwaukee. Uh, and when you looked at our coalition, we had, you know, black, white and brown represented. We had a Latina sign on. We had uh, African-American woman. We had people from across the spectrum who signed on to this initiative. And we had a representative Lakeisha Myers, for example, here in Milwaukee. And, you know, I'm not sure if I've ever seen this crew of legislators, you know, unite on one initiative before. But it was really special uh, to see that. 
you know, at the congressional level, uh, when I, I think about some of the efforts we've done there, one thing you know I referenced earlier, uh, the Centers for Disease Control now being authorized to study gun violence, you know, that was co-sponsored uh, by a Democrat named Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy and a Republican named uh, Congressman Carlos Curbelo, you know, Democrat, Republican, who at the time were our co-chairs of our Congressional Future Caucus, which is our, our chapter in Congress. And that was really special because, again, coming from very, you know, somewhat different political perspectives, decided to work together on an issue that the conventional wisdom would say, hey, there's nothing bipartisan you could find. Uh, on this issue. And and the truth is, you can. And I think one thing to take away from this Wisconsin story or from this congressional story is the power of relationships and trust and respect and having an inclusive process. And I think when you have legislation that we just saw recently with this uh, huge uh, bill that was passed through Congress, when things are done in a purely partisan basis, I actually think that reveals some of the deficiencies within in the process itself, where we've been successful and we have these unlikely people signing on. It's because we've been building that for years. And as a result, the legislators themselves have come to respect each other and know that they're trusted collaborators on... Yeah, and you and I have had many, many conversations about the importance of civil discourse, talking to people with whom we disagree, who hold different positions from the positions that we hold. And to me, this principle is central to any vision of not only politics, but actually of, of ethics as well. So what's your take? I think you're speaking to this, and I think it's worth saying very specifically, why is, is civil discourse particularly important in the talking about Well, I think... What I might call it even more so than civil discourse is respectful uh, discourse. I know sometimes when when you hear uh, civil discourse, what I don't want people to hear is sort of papering over our differences in favor of just having a polite conversation. I think that we need to bring our full selves to the conversation, our full identities. That's something I really picked up in music, especially jazz music. Like when you're improvising with jazz musicians, you want to bring your life story to the table. That is what will make the art so much more exciting. And I think the same principle is true for our politics. You know, sometimes there's this narrative out there that, you know, you need to check your principles at the door, check your head at the door, check your identity at the door. And we're saying, no, that, that that's not a full holistic process. That's not going to lead to dignified solutions. And, and so I think respectful, humanistic dialogue is extremely important right now. And the reason why that's important is because we are definitely living in humanity's greatest experiment in diverse democracy, where we have people representing, you know, all different religions and ethnicities and, and races. And this style of political experiment has never succeeded before in, in human history. And so we're, you know, we're only, we're coming up on America's 250th birthday in 2026. And that will be a huge milestone for this experiment. But, you know, let's remember that we are the exception to the rule. And the way we can continue to be exceptions to the rule is by engaging in respectful, dignified, honest political conversations. And again, this is not about 
uh, finding, you know, some kind of ambiguous middle ground. I think it's about having curiosity and having empathy and compassion in our politics. And for those who say, well, I don't like to have conversations with people who are different than me, or I don't like to have conversations with the other party. Let me offer some self-interested reasons to engage in respectful dialogue. One would be that you will better anticipate counter arguments if you hear from the other side, and that will sharpen your own position. The second thing is you might actually learn something that you didn't know. I mean, a lot of these policy issues, they're very complicated. And so you're going to probably learn something new about maybe how a policy is implemented on the ground level and how maybe it could be designed a little bit better. But here's the one that doesn't get talked about enough. For your own personal well-being, having respectful, inclusive dialogue is actually good for our personal health. There's now you know health research on this. And think about it. When you are actively hating someone or actively mm -hmm. trying to shut someone down, that sends a negative vibration uh, through your body. And, and so if for no other reason, just to have a better mood and, and have a better health, I think this style of respectful, open, inclusive dialogue to yeah, there's so many things I could, I want to branch out with there. I, I will just briefly note that you are the third musician who we've hosted on this podcast, Jaron Lanier being the, the first Daryl Davis. Yes. Uh, the very famous author and advocate of civil discourse being the second, but you are the first millennial musician. So maybe there's a question that I should ask there because key to the acronym MAP is the idea of a caucus of millennials, the self-interest and the importance of millennials participating in civic discourse. Do millennials think about action, specifically political action, and specifically the relationship between political action and civic discourse differently than other generations? If so, I think there are some key distinctions, which I'll get to in a second. But I also want to note that the reason for including millennial in our name was more to emphasize that cultivating young leaders and developing the, the capacity of young leadership is our greatest vehicle to transform our political culture. And so even if, hypothetically speaking, millennials weren't different at all, we still would have put millennial in the name of our organization because as a theory of change, I believe that's how you really change the world. And, and I point to often Dr. King and John Lewis as examples of young leaders who are just in their 20s and early 30s when they really made their mark on the world. And so there is a long history of massive political change led by young leaders. Now, that said, I do believe that there are some key distinctions to point out about this millennial generation. And one is to highlight that the largest increase in independent voters in the United States today is the millennial demographic and then those who are younger than us, Generation Z. And I believe that independence is born from a dissatisfaction and a disenchantment with our major institutions. You see that millennials have the least trust and confidence in our political institutions to deliver positive change for us. And so that disillusionment, I think, leads to a sense, a kind of a rejection of the status quo uh, in politics. I think the second thing that's important to highlight is, I think given this sort of independence, 
what we're most interested in are the issues as opposed to the party. You see this play out in the data on so many issues where the young people who are really trying to advocate on these issues uh, are not trying to get boxed in in a party way. I'll give a great example on this. When you look at this extraordinary movement that the Parkland students led after that horrific school shooting, they really elevated the consciousness of this issue of gun violence. And when they came to Washington, D.C., I remember we were there when they came to D.C., and they were asked over and over again, are you endorsing Democrats or are you endorsing certain candidates? And they would say without question, we're not here to endorse any political party or political candidates. We're here to endorse the need for gun violence reform and for our peers not to have to worry about getting shot in school. That's an important reframing. And so it's more about the issue than it is about the party. And by the way, I think that's a good thing because the only way we're going to advance those issues is by building diverse cross-party coalitions. The final distinction I'll highlight is our lived experience of being a digital generation, mm -hmm. which I think you know speaks to the themes of your podcast, that we have grown up in an era where now you could collaborate on Google Docs in real time with someone who's on the other side of the planet. And you can learn about things that are going on that in previous generations would not otherwise be possible. So you can hear a larger array of perspectives theoretically. And we're going to, I'm sure, discuss this a little bit later in the podcast on how practical that is. But I do believe this idea of a bottom-up peer-to-peer model of making mm -hmm. change, you think about Kickstarter and the sharing economy services, I think we do look more to these peer-to-peer -peer models and collaboration is a value that shows up as one of the top traits in our generation. So those are some... Yeah, if I could pull out one thread of argumentation or thought from that, it seems to me very interesting that right now we are being led by what I think Jane Mayer called a geriatric form of government. And one of the things that I think I've increasingly been thinking about, kind of in line with Malka Older, who was, posits the possibility of a future form of governance called infomocracy, meaning mm. precisely what you're talking about here, that we're no longer divided necessarily by geographical location or affiliated tribally based on geographical location or even by party, but rather by kind of either information bubbles or also kind of issue-based situation positions that oftentimes are like kaleidoscope, like changing based on the information circuitry and the position circuitry of a, of a certain issue. And this is something that I really wanted to pick up on here because I think that the generation gap between the geriatric form of governance Mm -hmm. and millennials really does have to do with our degree of access and our agility and the way in which we're natively born into technological forms of those kinds of communities. So maybe we can pick up that right now and, and focus the question specifically on the relationship between digital communities and political formation. Over the last decade or so, the political sphere has increasingly integrated the technological and specifically the digital into the way it functions. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a timeline. When, when did this start in your view? And what are some of the origins? I would point to the 1990s 
as the early interface between politics and digital media. That was when the first websites for politicians and political causes emerged. You had the first major political scandals uh, take place online. You had political media websites uh, coming online, the beginning of some blogs that really went into the early 2000s. And that began this whole era of fragmented uh, political media where the only source of information was was not the evening news. It was a lot of amateur journalists and others commenting on political news that became increasingly uh, influential. And then I would also point to Howard Dean's campaign in 2004 as a real watershed moment. His was, I would argue, the first truly internet-driven uh, presidential campaign, introduced the idea of raising money from sm small donors, and then Barack Obama really capitalized on that movement and then took advantage for the first time truly social media and had a very Facebook-driven uh, campaign. In fact, a co-founder of Facebook came on board with the Obama team. And then social media was a permanent fixture of politics and communication on both sides of elected leaders as well as their constituents. And then Donald Trump really took advantage of Twitter uh, to communicate his message. And, th and that was sort of the next frontier uh, in social media. And, you know, one reflection from all of that is to highlight that incorporating new communication mediums into politics is nothing new. In fact, usually the transformative of political figures are the ones that find ways to take advantage of new media. And when I use the tr word transformative, that could be positive or negative. But for example, I was recently doing some research on Lincoln's rise and his, his campaign, and he was really the first to take advantage of the photograph as a means of political communication. And that's why we have some iconic photographs of, of Lincoln. And then you move to FDR. He was the first mm -hmm. one to take advantage of radio. John F. Kennedy was the first to take advantage of television, and they had the first televised debates. Uh, and then I would point to generally Obama and Trump being uh, really the the first to take advantage of uh, social media. And so these two spaces of media and politics and now digital media and politics are inextricably linked together and we're not going backwards. And so for uh, future political leaders who are wondering how can I articulate a positive message given all of this negativity out there in digital forums, we need to understand how we're going to take advantage of these technologies to maximize the good and minimize the bad. A good analogy I use is in the car industry. You know, it wasn't Elon Musk saying, well, we're not going to drive cars. He said, I'm going to build a car that is better in every respect than the incumbent car industry. It's going to be faster. It's going to accelerate better. It's going to look better. It's going to be safer than everyone else. And on top of that, it's going to be zero emissions because it's electronic. It's driven by electric power. And so I think we need that type of thinking in politics today. It's not to say that, well, we can't make passion go viral because it's really hate that sells. No, let's figure out how we're going to elevate digital media for positive means. And the last just point I'll make on this is, is a story from last summer. We had Dr. King's eldest son involved in a program that we had. And, and I basically asked him, would your dad be on social media? I, I had a more eloquent way of asking it, but that was basically what I asked. 
And Mm -hmm. his response was essentially that his father would be using the modalities available to him to spread a message of love. And I think likewise, we need to use the tools available to us for positive, respectful dialogue, for Mm -hmm. compassion in politics and all the good that we want to see. You know, I couldn't help thinking as you were speaking of not only the ways in which technology has been embedded in some of the basic political principles and activities uh, across American history, from, as you said, the radio to television to the photograph. And one thing that has increasingly been on my mind is something that I think is perhaps unprecedented although I would be willing to be talked out or corrected on this, which is a term that I have increasingly heard thrown about, which is algocracy, rule by algorithms. This, I think, is something relatively new and something unprecedented and something that we're going to have to reckon with. To give a brief definition of that term algocracy, algocracy or rule by algorithms is the sense in which our behavior is fed into feedback loops that then modify our behavior. And in the political realm, oftentimes uh, allow us to ultimately, or lead us rather than allow us, um, lead us to political beliefs or political endorsements um, that the algorithm has induced us to believe in. So for example, you click on a YouTube video that is an immigration rally, and then it takes you to something else that says support the border wall. And then it takes you to something else that says we need to lock people who have transgressed the border in cages. And suddenly you have, by virtue of following an algorithm that has predicted your behavior and algorithms tend to work by leading us toward more and more severe and extreme forms, because that is how it learns. And we end up supporting radical positions And in this sense, that impacts our democratic function and our democratic health because it does tend to lead toward kind of polarities and extremism. What's your take on algocracy? Is this something that you're concerned about? Should we be concerned about it? That's a fascinating concept. I think there's a lot of truth to this idea that the algorithms are running our country in some ways, and certainly at the very least uh, having a huge impact on shaping our opinions. And I think what those algorithms are preying on is one, that shock value gets eyeballs and attention, and the social media companies are based on the attention economy. And the second, that we enjoy reinforcing our existing political views and generally our views on life. And so when you have an echo chamber that's reinforcing what we already think, that feels good and actually want more of it it's like a little bit like a drug i guess that you you want you you need it and you want more of it and so that's why where i think that this attention-based economy is now leading into an addiction based economy because it's really preying on human emotions and and behaviors to not only maximize our time spent with these uh, platforms but also to make us feel like we need it and the feeling like we need it is i think the the real goal of these algorithms and the polarity that you were speaking of and the hatefulness and shock value required to get there are more of a means to the end of Mm -hmm. getting your attention and being addicted to it. And so that is a business model that we need to change because obviously it has a huge impact on our political dialogue and our policy choices. It's really easy. You know, look, there have been demagogues throughout 
not only American political history, but throughout human history and human civilization. So there's nothing new about demagogic uh, politics. But I do think that we are now coming to grips with how technology and digital media is pouring gasoline on mm -hmm. some of these darkest impulses that we have as human beings. And those are trends that we have to fully understand because I still believe that a diverse democracy is one of the greatest innovations mm -hmm. uh, in human history. And if we want this political system to not only continue but thrive, we need to make sure that our digital media is mm -hmm. compatible with a thriving of diverse democracy. What are you seeing in terms of the change of meanings or possibilities of meeting in the middle with the rise of digital communities or online interactions, social media, et cetera? You provide a very hopeful view when you talk about Dr. King wanting to participate in social media yeah. um, of all of these generative possibilities here. Many other critics of social media identify social media, at least in its current iteration with its current business practices as being extremely destructive. What's your take? Well, I think that you know, there's a lot to be critical of. And I think we have to identify the core problems in, in social media right now and, and call out this increasingly immoral business model. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's also helpful to see where the future is going and how we can understand which trend lines will promote the most good. So here are a couple examples of that. It used to be the case in I would say the mid 2000s that social media had a net positive as opposed to a net negative in our politics. There was a democratizing effect in politics because more people could participate than ever before. You know, you had more people not only voicing their opinions directly to their elected officials, which is an incredible thing. You would have members of Congress reviewing their comments on their Facebook wall. You know, that's incredible access to get. And I know personal stories of congressional members taking that input and turning it into positive mm -hmm. legislation. On top of that, sure. you had the democratization of money in politics where individual small donors who might donate five bucks, 10 bucks actually had a huge voice and that fueled more outsider type candidates like an Obama or more recently, uh, maybe a Bernie Sanders or back in those days, uh, a Howard Dean who were able to challenge establishment politics. Uh, and then perhaps most profound have been the campaigns and movements for human rights globally facilitated by social media. So those are some interesting notes. And then again, I think it's really in maybe the past decade or so where the negative started to outweigh the positive and that mm -hmm. equation uh, flipped. And so that's one thing I would mention. The second thing I'd mention is that I'm now seeing for the first time some real glimmers of hope in the future of digital media. And I still remember going to Silicon Valley uh, a few years ago and I spoke to uh, one of the major tech companies out there. And this was before the congressional hearings. This must have been before definitely some of the big hearings. And, and I would ask the company about their responsibility for more positive political dialogue. And generally the opinion was, we're just putting an app out there. We don't really care what happens after that. We have no responsibility. So those were pretty depressing things to hear because it's ultimately who is responsible. Now I'm seeing some positive glimmers of hope. And one of those glimmers is exactly what we're doing right now. The rise of podcasts that allow for long form conversation and in-depth dialogue is bringing not only more different perspectives together for a truly thoughtful conversation, mm -hmm. but on top of that, you're seeing this form of thoughtful conversation made available to a lot of people because 
someone can listen to a podcast, for example, on their way to work or maybe while they're working out or when they're doing their laundry. <laughs> and so it's it's really kind of integrating with, with people's lifestyles. And that's very exciting to see the rise of podcasts and some really interesting conversations emerging from that. That's something that, again, I see growing over the coming years. The second thing that really stands out to me is the rise of streaming platforms and really good documentary films. Mm. And what I like about this is that these companies, so if you consider a Netflix, for example, they've already got your money because you're paying a subscription. And so once they've got your money, then the incentive is to put out really high quality content. And it's not so much about what you see on cable news, for example, where it's anything that's going to shock you into watching the news and usually the lower thirds on the screen will be just the, the most insane thing or something that fits your existing narrative just so you can start watching it. And the good thing I see emerging with these streaming platforms is that I think they've already got your money. So it's less about preying on our darkest impulses and they're a little bit more incentive on producing really high quality content. And so when I see documentaries like an amazing one, I saw recently called Crip Camp on Netflix, which is about the disability rights movement in mm -hmm. this country. That's really promising. So for the first time, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, when it comes to digital media and new media platforms, I'm seeing some good emerging too. And Stephen is being very modest uh, because one of the great documentaries of our moment is The Reunited States, which <laughs> features Stephen and his work along with Van Jones and Megan McCain. Truly, I think, a collective of people in different positions coming to the center. You, you've said a, a bunch of interesting things there, maybe again, just picking up on one thread of them. It isn't as though there was a huge political shift in the way that people were indigenously thinking in the late, you know, 20 teens, where people thought one way in up till 2010, and then 2010 plus thought a different way was actually that Silicon Valley changed its business model, the algorithmic function of social media dramatically changed things like Facebook groups, algorithms that generated increasing amount, or at least attempted or intended to change how people behaved online by providing kind of those learning mechanisms where uh, people were kept online for longer and longer periods of times by invoking an emotional and typically negative emotional response to that. I, I'm thinking back here to season three, where we had a series that we called Changing Minds with Daryl Davis and Bill Ottman. And on the concept of changing minds, and both Bill and Daryl envisioned social media as a space that can actively promote civil discourse by creating connections and allowing people from geographically distant spaces from different camps and tribes to connect across differences and distances. And both of them communicated a distinct priority of value to be free speech unfettered. I go back and forth on this. On the one hand, I truly value free speech as a principle of civil discourse. On the other hand, I look at, for example, our former president's use of the broad terminology of free speech, even if misunderstood or poorly employed as a rationale for saying oftentimes hateful and harmful things. And my thinking goes back and forth between wanting to preserve free speech as an absolute unfettered priority of the value. And on the other hand, saying inevitably what we do in an ethical context is we try and decide between competing priorities of values. And an ethical moment is not one where we know which value we choose. It is the one in which competing values 
values need to be chosen between. What's your take on free speech coming from the perspective of, of civic discourse? Well, I, I like how you framed that because I think that the need for the ethical mindset is required not only when things are going well and the answers are obvious, but also when you have these really difficult conflicts and, and tensions between values that we hold dear. And I think this is a great example of that where I think, again, at the beginning of social media, there was a lot of hope around promoting free speech and extending free speech uh, to more people, people who might have previously been silenced, now had the opportunity to voice their opinion, sometimes to the biggest powers uh, in the world. And I think that's a positive expression of democracy. Now, at the same time, you have a lot of misinformation and outright hate that's helping to fuel active genocides right now in the, in the world, facilitated by social media at the same time. Uh, as well. And so what responsibility do publishers of content, and I would put social media companies in that category, what responsibilities do publishers of content have to promote free speech and truth uh, and general flourishing of the human race? And I think that's where the regulatory conversation comes in because <laughs> Television outlets, for example, radio outlets, there are standards of conduct. I'm a former radio DJ, and actually my first job at the radio station was in the music department, and <laughs> my job was to listen to music, which is a great job, and to listen for any vulgarities in the music. I would put a note on that because there are certain times during the day when you can't have vulgar language. And of course, our radio station didn't want to break the law, and also we didn't want to have to pay the fines to the FCC. And so that was my job, and I ultimately became a radio DJ, and I had to abide by those rules. And the reason for that is, you know, we were still free to, to put the music that we wanted to out there, but we also wanted to make sure that we are abiding by FCC rules and that there isn't a lot of vulgar language heard by, like, young people during the daytime. That's why they're basic standards, and that applies to television broadcasts as well. So I think what we're dealing with here is a growth problem where social media grew so virally mm -hmm. uh, and it totally outpaced the regulatory structures that we have. And we simply, well, not simply, but we need to now update our regulations for content publishers in this age of social media. And there's so many areas of federal policy that we've been directly involved in where you just simply need to update it for social media. I'll give a great example of this, political advertising. If you're advertising on the radio or television, you have to disclose where that money is coming from, who paid for it. That's why you see at the end, you know, paid for America United PAC, right? The whole idea with a new bill called the Honest Ads Act is to simply update that for social media because the same rule doesn't apply for social media. So I think in a similar way, we need to, I think we need to update a lot of our thinking for online content publishers. Yeah, although it's interesting because one of the ways that they get around those kinds of regulations is to say that they are not a content publisher. They are the equivalent technological 21st century equivalent of the town square, or they are a platform for people to connect and put their own content without regulation or without kind of any forms of restrictions in there. And of course, the largest claim that Facebook and Twitter makes is that what they essentially do is that they are strategies to help us 
bridge our differences and our distances by helping us connect. And I'm a little bit kind of cynical, I would say is a nice word about that kind of claim, because the most obvious counter argument to the claim that we are more connected and that we have bridged more of our differences and distances through these social media platforms is the evidence. We're more polarized than we were 10 to 20 years ago as a country. And anecdotally, at least my experience of political discourse online is that on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, there are three things that happen. Uh, everyone who already agrees with you clicks the like button and sends affirmation. And everybody who already disagrees with you clicks the angry face button and dogpiles insults. And then those two camps start to argue and sling insults against both you and each other. It makes me a little skeptical, as I said, cynical is a nice word, skeptical is a nice word, of more utopian claims about social media's potential for these kinds of harmonized connections across, across political lines. What's your take? Well, there's not a lot of harmonization going on right now. And there was a study that showed that two thirds of Americans now see people of the other party as not just being different or having a different viewpoint, but being fundamentally evil. And when you see someone as evil, it becomes easy to dehumanize them. And once you dehumanize a person, you can very quickly rationalize a lot of abhorrent behaviors. And ultimately what that leads to is violence. And that's why now it's not surprising that political violence is not an abstract concept in the United States. It is a real thing that we're seeing right now in the United States. And it's the timing of the Capitol insurrection was actually quite interesting because it was just a few months after the Social Dilemma documentary made a lot of headway and basically predicted this exact kind of thing. They depict a young person getting radicalized through social media and then going to a very destructive political rally and not all of a sudden realizing just how much he'd become brainwashed. And now we're seeing this in real life and, and it's not an exaggeration anymore. There's real political violence and social media companies are directly, um, if not responsible, they're certainly directly facilitating those acts of violence. And so there's not a lot of harmony. And I think you're right to point to the data that one of the things that if you look at the past, let's say 15 years and the rise of polarization uh, in our country, which are now the the levels of polarization in the United States are the worst that they've been since the Civil War. And so these are historic levels and we are seeing political violence uh, and you're seeing this rise of hatred in our politics. So what are the correlating factors there? I mean, certainly one is the rise of social media and, and likely some of the algorithms uh, that you were talking about earlier. And so I think, again, we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, what type of democracy do we want to live in? How do we want our voices uh, to be heard? And I think one of the, you know, you're talking about the the like and the dislike phenomenon on social media. It's really easy to put down other people without reflecting on yourself. And I see that dynamic exacerbated on social media because it's really easy to say that someone is not perfect enough, basically, whether they're, they're not, they're not enough of X and without recognizing that we are all imperfect as well. And then you have often the add addition of anonymity online as well, where you can actually spout even worse hatred uh, to people and say how terrible they are and how bad their idea is without a lot of personal repercussions. Of course, people are saying things that they would never say on a personal basis. But I'll give one quick story that will actually descend into a negative place, but actually have a positive outcome. 
which is through my work with Millennial Action Project, I see the personal journeys of a lot of young people running for office. And it's quite an experience. And as young people, they're usually more adept with digital media. And in the 2018 midterms, there was a congressional member, someone who I'm very close with, uh, running for Congress in, in Florida. And he started getting some death threats on Twitter. And they were concerning enough where he actually had the FBI look into it. FBI found the guy who was spouting these threats, apprehended him, and, and he was you know, sent to the police station. My friend, who's an existing me sitting member of Congress running for re-election, he calls the authorities and says, you know, where are you holding him right now? And they said, he's at this police station. He said, I would like for you to set up a conversation. I would like to speak with him directly. And I think my friend, the member of Congress, he's thinking to himself, I'm not sure that he really meant what he was saying or if this was just the best reflection of his behavior. He wanted to give him a second chance. So he goes to the police station. He sits down. It's, it turns out to be a young kid. I think he's maybe 19 years old and sat down with him and just asked him, like, why, why did you spout these things? And he just said, like, I, I really don't, didn't mean to say those things. It's, uh, and I apologize for doing it. Um, I think he might've been, you know, there's some other things going on in his life that gave him this kind of negative attitude. And I think also social media incentivizes us to say more destructive and sensational things. And, and I think he just got sort of caught up in, in that kind of firestorm of tweets. And then my friend, the member of Congress, did something very powerful. He forgave this young man. And not only did he forgive him, he said, I think it's important that we share this process of forgiveness and reconciliation with the world. And so they went in front of the cameras, they did a press conference together and said, kind of in a show of unity, that I don't want to define this young man by the worst thing that he's done in his life or the worst behaviors he had. I forgive him. And it was a really touching moment uh, because that kid, he clearly, clearly didn't mean to do that. And I think that it was a very magnanimous thing for uh, this member of Congress to do. This is an echo very much so of the conversation I had with Daryl Davis. And one of the things that we did in that conversation is we looked at the relationship between the kinds of reconciliatory events that happen on the individual level. And we thought about whether or not we can extrapolate those and build those into either uh, mass action or even legislative actions. And I guess, you know, my question here is, can we scale to a larger degree than the one-on-one? -on -one? Or is there something about the one-on-one -on -one that cannot translate into the kind of anonymity or the sense of virtual personhood that happens when we encounter one another online? And if it is the latter, if it truly is a question of online virtual behavior, which you gestured toward in your comment, how do we change the structure of virtual interactions, either in social media, digital space, and or a combination of different kinds of digital interactions that, that happen and translate into in-person, vociferous kinds of hatred and reconciliation that are only possible, I think, in personal space? Well, I think it's a great question, this question about scalability. I think as human beings, we can give off a positive vibration or a negative vibration. And which one we have has a huge impact on our behavior, how we talk to people and how we treat people. Just think about for anyone who's tuning in right now, if you've got small company, let's say 15, 20 people, someone comes in having a bad day, 
just think about how that affects everyone else. Think about how that person makes decision that decisions that day. And generally the mindset is going to be, I don't know if we can do this or no, I don't, I, I don't feel capable of doing this or, you know, I don't think we should be doing this. It's a lot of negativity that can kind of fester. And on the flip side, if there's a positive mindset and one in which people are excited and optimistic and seeing how we can build things together, then there's so much more imagination. All of a sudden you push yourself to do things you didn't think you could previously do. And the whole collective rises as a result of that. And so I believe that leaders can choose whether they, as Lincoln said, call on the better angels of our nature, or we appeal to our darkest impulses. We all have a light side and a sort of dark side uh, in that we can be drawn to either force depending on what's going on. And so I actually do believe, as hard as it sounds, I do believe this reconciliatory conversation is scalable. It won't be easy, but it requires a self-reflection that we all go through individually and collectively as a society. And it requires a lot of inner work. I think we need to develop some skills individually that exercise our empathy muscles and build that into a practice. That's something we talk a lot about with Millennial Action Project's work when we do dialogues. And as we practice those muscles, we need to actively choose engagements online and choose political leaders who believe in that type of reconciliatory conversation. But we won't get there without that inner work. And, and I talked about the inner work we have to do individually, but there's collective inner work we need to do as well. We need to confront directly, as painfully as it will be, the systemic legacies of racism and slavery and all of the uh, of uh, Native American genocide, of all of the inequities that we have in our country since its founding in order for us to get to that reconciliatory point. And if we do that personal inner work and we do that collective inner work, then I think it all opens up so many possibilities. And I am seeing this conversation scale up already right now. I'm seeing not only Millennial Action Project that has hosted dialogues across the state of Wisconsin and we grew and so many more people came out. You know, we started with about 20 people coming to each dialogue. By the end of the first year, we had over 100 people coming out to every dialogue that we were hosting. We called it Red and Blue Dialogues that included both community members and local and state elected officials. There are other organizations like Braver Angels that are hosting dialogues and grassroots convenings uh, across the country. You have a lot of efforts that I'm seeing uh, that's in different ways trying to bring people together across lines of difference. And I'm now starting to see the tipping point of an, a, a strong enough ecosystem that is able to change the consciousness uh, of our country. I think a lot of this groundwork is happening beneath the media radar right now. And I think one thing that's in my personal calling as a next step is to make lightning strike on that emerging ecosystem to bring it more to the surface. We bring that to the surface. It's going to change the vibration of our political conversations and more of the compassionate, the inclusive, the magnanimous side of us 
I think will come out. And so that's one reason I'm hopeful. I want to go back to the scalability issue um, and in particular, bring it to the context of talking about how we as a democratic republic talk and speak to one another and feel about issues in particular and how our legislators represent those issues and vote on those issues. As it stands right now, the political divide that exists in the country is, as you said, larger than we have experienced since the civil war. And we see this kind of divide in particular represented and reflected, I think, most potently in our political leadership. There is recently a $1.9 trillion stimulus package that passed with massive pushback from Republicans in the House. Just to give you a couple statistics, while the Republican pushback was severe, I think the most recent statistic is that 70% of all Americans, Democrats, and Republicans, and over half of Republican voters were in support of that stimulus package, which majorly helps, and I'm going to plug it here because I think it's so important that people know what's in it, provide COVID vaccines, federal unemployment insurance, relief to businesses, checks to people earning uh, below $80,000 and families earning below $150,000, and other major and essential efforts to reduce poverty and to provide aid in this critical moment. But not a single Republican in either chamber, the Senate or the House of Representatives voted for it, despite the fact that this bipartisan support in the population existed. What's the gap in partisanship between the scales, the public on the one hand and our leaders on the other? There's a huge gap because currently the approval ratings of Congress among the American people are generally around 15 to 20 percent. And yet we reelect over 80 percent of members to back to Congress every two years. So that in itself is a significant gap of, of faith and a gap of, of trust and understanding. And on top of that, you have elected officials who are widening not only the credibility gap because they don't do a great job of, of legislating, uh, but also they're widening the political gap between left and right. And then you talked about the kind of gerontocracy earlier, this gap between old and young as well. And as observers of politics, we only see the final result. So we'll see, as you mentioned, with this $1.9 trillion bill, that it was passed purely on partisan lines in the House and the Senate. What I'm trying to bring to light are the systemic reasons why this partisan style of legislating seems to be the only alternative to gridlock. It's like either you have gridlock or you have partisan legislating, as opposed to a collaborative, generative process where you co-create new solutions together. And the truth is there are a lot of reasons why that doesn't happen. And I think we need to raise awareness of some of those reasons. So you have, I'll just mention a few. I mean, there are too many for us to go into full detail here, but you know, some of the reasons include the way that we elect our officials through the partisan primary process. So generally your only concern is whether you're going to get primaried and there isn't any incentive for reaching across the aisle for collaborative policymaking. Another one that fuels this dynamic is our money and politics system, where there's basically a financial arms race now to raise as much money as possible. Literally, the lens through which you're seen as a credible candidate is how much money you raise. And a lot of people don't know this. There, there's a price to pay for getting on certain committee assignments in Congress. If you want to be on the Financial Services Committee, you got to pay a price. Th these are called party dues. 
And if you want to be on any of the more prominent committees, you have to raise a lot more money and pay those dues to your party. And the path of least resistance to raise all that money is either through corporate contributions who have business in front of your committee or to basically scare people into donating to you by preying on their worst fears and using all of the destructive impulses and incentives that we were talking about earlier. So that's a huge factor as well. We could talk about gerrymandering among other issues, not to mention just the moral lack of imagination and just generally you have to be a wealthier person to run for office. And so you wonder why people at the bottom aren't getting represented. And I'm seeing some of these things you know, firsthand right now here in Wisconsin. And so I think it's really important to surface why this happens. And I've seen behind the scenes how these bills get made. And it's basically this practice of we're coming up with the Democratic plan. And then if you're lucky, maybe there's going to be a Republican plan. And then you kind of negotiate and have a transactional conversation going on after that. And I think that's just completely wrong. Like, this is such a messed up mental construct that exists in Congress right now. In normal life, if you want people to come on board with what you're doing, you listen and understand and you start building solutions together. And then magically, and I say that sarcastically, you have buy-in from these different coalitions around the solution. That's something people do normally in their daily lives. And yet that doesn't happen uh, in Congress because, again, this messed up kind of social, mental, political construct that exists there. And so we really need to change the the culture of how things are, are running. I saw lots of bills get proposed by one party. The other party had leaders who might want to jump onto a bill, maybe agree with 80 percent of it. And they'll say, nope, we, we don't want we don't want the other party to sign on to this. We don't want to pass it. The, the, the hard truth that I'm trying to raise awareness of right now is that the incentive for these incumbents in Congress right now often is to leave an issue unaddressed unless they can pass it purely in a partisan way so they can take credit for it. You know, there's a great saying that says, I'm, you know, it's amazing how much you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. And I think we need more of that mentality in Congress. You know, I think that what you're talking about here is a political issue, but it is also deeply an ethical issue. And we've been circling around and sometimes specifically talking about ethics, but maybe we should talk about ethics in politics right now specifically. I'm interested in what you're saying here about the amount of stuff you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. And I'm also interested in the importance and, and what you exemplify, which is taking actions right there in MAPS acronym, Millennial Action Project. We've talked a lot about the millennial part. Let's talk about the action part. Do you think that we have not only a political responsibility, but an ethical responsibility to act or to combat conflict? And where, if anywhere, does this ethical responsibility lie? Does it lie with individuals, with our groups, with our elected leaders, our corporations, the people who are donating money? Do they have ethical responsibilities? Social media sites, publishers, do, do all of these, in your view, have as entities who contribute to the political processes an ethical responsibility there? What do you think? I really like this point you're making because I think that this idea of action and the ethical responsibility to act is so important and has been lost uh, in our political life today. I was just talking about this with some workers who lost their job in the, the paper uh, industry here in Wisconsin. And the general idea was, well, you've seen politicians you know, talk a good game about incentivizing work and, and production here in this country, but who actually does it? Who's done the hard work of building coalitions to pass legislation? 
isolation and deliver for these communities in need. And that's where you get to this idea of an ethical responsibility uh, to act. And you're right to point out that the middle word in Millennial Action Project, the operative word was always action. And the reason why is because I think our generation, one reason why we've lost faith is that we're not seeing enough action on the issues facing our generation. You take climate change as an example, where you keep kicking the can down the road and we'll inherit the problem in the future. So the need to act now on these challenges in a responsible way is so great. And and yet there are so many incentives really not to do it or where maybe you have politicians who are banking on people not paying attention that they're not actually solving these issues and just try and persuade you with their charm and with their ability to just talk and, and talk a good game on social media. I think we as consumers need to get really sophisticated about calling out the inaction, even if you're saying the right thing, but you've been in office for 30 years. We have a responsibility to ask, why haven't you passed anything on that issue in 30 years? Or why are you only bringing it up now? And if there isn't a good answer, then we need the next generation to step forward and start making these decisions on behalf of our future. So that's how I would look at it in a political context. But you also mentioned a few other entities, right? Corporate and others that I think definitely have this ethical responsibility as well. And I think that you're starting to see some interesting movements recently where you saw corporations starting to reevaluate their political giving in the wake of the insurrection and the challenge to the electoral college vote. And I think those are uh, important developments for sure, because I think consumers are getting smarter and smarter to be able to call out corporations too on their BS when they're not living up to the values that we would want to see or maybe that they espouse. So I, I think one reason we added action to the name of Millennial Action Project was to say that we need a style of politics that delivers. Mm -hmm. If we want to close the credibility gap in politics to where we're at a sustainable level of faith in our institutions, we're right now at an unsustainable level and we got to change it. So we want to increase that to a place where even 30 or 40 percent of the U.S. public approves with what's happening in our government. We need a politics that delivers. And that's why action is in the name of Millennial Action Project. I'm going to take a bit of a left turn here with the next question, but I should mention before I ask it that this question list and the larger research portfolio out of which it came and the entire orchestration of the conversation came out of the next generation or the people who I hope are the next generation of our leaders, which are Cal Poly students who, who research and put together and produce this podcast. And I would be letting them down very severely if I didn't call attention to one question that they wanted me to ask you, which is about your passion as a musician and your work as a musician and the kind of metaphors and the kind of synchronicity that happened there. And most specifically, their curiosity about how you got involved with multi-platinum recording artist, Akon. <laughs> what kind of work do you do with him? Why? And how is this a metaphor for your democratic process? It actually is a great metaphor for my general mentality of making change. And shout out to your Cal Poly students for putting this on the list of questions. They did a really great job. Let me take a brief step back here, then I'll explain the, the Akon stuff. 
I'm really a big believer, as we've talked about in this podcast, of building collaborations across lines of difference, bringing unlikely partners together, and trying to persuade different people or organizations around this larger vision of dignity for all and opportunity for all. And one of the first issues I worked on when I was coming out of college was energy and climate change. And I remember actually having the opportunity to work on a a project around water access and stewardship with Coca-Cola. And I think a lot of friends in my environmental community would say like, why are you working with this company? It was a fellowship kind of setup. And my thinking was, well, Coca-Cola has the largest distribution in the entire world. And if they improve their process by even 1%, that has a huge impact. And I remember we had the opportunity to uh, work on safe water access issues in rural Africa, getting basic sanitation and water and hygiene to rural schools there. And I remember coming out of that experience with, I guess, a sense of affirmation that this methodology, in that case, it was a public-private partnership, really has a tangible impact. It gets back to your earlier question about the operative an ethical spirit of action. And so that takes me to the Akon partnership. We had a close mutual friend who uh, put us in touch. And Akon, I remember, was very interested after he had lots of success in the record industry, wanted to figure out what kind of positive impact can he make in the world. And he had some ideas, but he you know, wanted the advice of our mutual friend. He asked me some ideas as well. And ultimately, the idea of Akon Lighting Africa came up and the vision was to electrify over a million rural homes with electric power and clean energy in Africa, across the, the African continent. Akon is from Senegal, he spent a lot of his early years growing up in Senegal. And so, you know, when this came up, I'm thinking to myself, I mean, I remember listening to Akon's music when I was in college. <laughs> But I'm not necessarily someone who would endorse every like song lyric he's ever made or so everything like that. But I do think when I see him speaking to young people, he's doing it in a really real way. He's someone who's been uh, formerly uh, incarcerated. And I will never forget when we were at President Obama's Global Entrepreneurship Summit together in Kenya. And you had a bunch of speakers that morning, lots of high profile people, fancy government officials. Then Akon gets on stage and all of a sudden, all of these young entrepreneurs, uh, largely of African descent, they look up from their phones and they pay attention to every word that he's saying. There is an authenticity to his message. And I talked to a lot of young people after that speech, they're fired up to start their own businesses and make their dreams come true. And so it was a lot of fun to work on this project with him. I learned a lot about fame and I learned a lot about what that world is like, you know, when everyone wants to get a selfie with you. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I'll never forget one time. This was, I want to say this was around the time of President Obama. He had a U.S. Africa summit where he invited a lot of uh, African leaders and, and Akon was a big part of that. And I remember these world leaders are inviting him to all of these fancy restaurants. And one day he says, like, I just want to go to a pizza place, like nothing fancy. And <laughs> We roll up to, I think it was Fuel Pizza, <laughs> just like a little pizza joint 
uh, at a street corner and we walk in and people are just looking at him like, what? Why is Akon like walking into this pizza place right now <laughs> and acting like a normal person? So it was fun, but I think on a more serious note, what was important about this was the same thing I learned with, I think, the Coca-Cola experience, which is, you know, with, with Akon, obviously he brings a lot of star power and, you know, access and a lot of doors opened. And I wasn't involved in all aspects of it, but I just saw how at the end of the day, there are lots of efforts trying to bring energy and, and power to Africa. And yet a lot of them don't make the difference that they intended to be and they run into a lot of problems. And this was an effort where I saw a tangible you know, difference being made. And because of Akon's star power, a lot of those doors opened up. And so the thinking was, okay, how do we leverage what he can bring to the table to help rural children in many different African countries be able to read their homework at night after the sun goes down? That has a huge impact on, on people. And, and I've, I saw firsthand some of the impact as well. So... That's the nature of the work with Akon. He's a, he's a funny guy. Well, I have about a thousand more questions about that and about you, but I, I think we have time for just one more. And I'd like to end these episodes with a question for and on the next generation of technologists and humanists emphasis on generation. Back to the emphasis on the millennial mention of the MAP acronym. What should the next generation of voters understand or be aware of or be thoughtful about in considering our move toward becoming political participants, activists, and leaders? Well, I would say for all of the young people who are tuning in right now, I would suggest that our highest calling in our generation right now would be civic engagement. I think that is the calling of our time. There are a lot of important issues, obviously. And I, I think that when we consider our lives on a kind of longer term time scale, whether we act right now to uphold the idea of a diverse democracy through the respectful, inclusive conversation that we've been talking about today, that will have a ripple effect beyond the time that we're alive. And when I read history, it's very clear that we are living through an inflection point right now. Our civic institutions are under a lot of stress. And if if we really lean in as voters and leaders and consumers of information in a smart way, in a discerning way, and, and an inclusive way, I think that is one of the great contributions that uh, our generation can make. And the second point I would make is related to that, but more specifically on the need to see the best in each other when we're having conversations that are difficult and with people who don't have the same political views that we do. As we've talked about, it's so easy to get stuck in our own echo chambers. And that honestly transcends digital media. There's evidence showing that we're in increasingly living around people you know, who agree with us as well. And I think we need to make an extra effort to find people who can challenge our views or expand our views just to expand our thinking more. Mm -hmm. And when we have those conversations, approach it with our, our greatest sense of compassion and empathy and love. And if we do that, we might not feel like it's making a huge difference, but it actually is because every positive conversation you have like that will impact the subsequent conversations that you have and the other participants have. And that is a powerful ripple effect. Bobby Kennedy talked about these ripples of hope that cascade out and ultimately become waves uh, of change. And I hope people feel like as crazy as the problem is, 
that we have the agency to choose every single day how we want to show up to this democracy. And I hope people feel empowered because of that. I think it's exciting. And if anyone wants to learn more about the movement that we're trying to build, please look us up uh, on social media uh, or our website, millennialaction.org. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you.